Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on the Next Level Brands Podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses, workshops, and webinars for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you've got a small business started selling locally at farmer's markets, then Ready for Retail is the online course for you. From packaging to UPC codes to determining a proper wholesale price, Ready for Retail has all the information you need to be selling in stores. More details at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. Well, this is Steve Clear, and I'm very glad to have with me as my guest today, David Lemley. David is the president and the chief strategist of Retail Voodoo, a Seattle-based brand strategy firm that helps specialty food and beverage brands gain market share by addressing their toughest growth challenges. David is armed with a passion for ideology-driven companies and has over 25 years of industry experience, including clients like Essentia Water, REI, our good friends at Kind, Sir Latab, and Dry Soda. David has dedicated his career to helping better for you brands and their leadership teams at those critical points where the brand has gone from one of a kind to one one of a kind from one of many. He is also, by the way, an author and has a new book out, Beloved and Dominant Brands, which we're going to talk about, which helps better for you brand leaders on the path to becoming both beloved and dominant within their categories. Welcome to the show, David. Steve, thank you so much for having me. That was quite an intro. I'll try to not mess it up. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's, there's so much. Um, I, you know, I, I was preparing some questions and stuff before the show, and there's just so many things to talk about. So we don't get through them all today. Well, maybe we'll do another, you know, show down the road if to stuff we don't get to. But I wanted to get started to find out. I was thinking. Um, we're, we both work in branding in kind of different, in different ways. Um, how did you become basically a brand strategist? Did you, were you in college one day and woke up and said, I'm going to be a brand strategist or how did you evolve into that from your, your former lives? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the short answer is no, I didn't dream it up in college because when I was in college, there was no such thing as brand strategy. (laughs) There was marketing, uh, data science, and there was advertising and design and commercial art. And that that was the and classic marketer, but there was no such thing as brand with a capital B. It was brand with a lowercase b as in like scar the cow. Right. Yep. So my background is that I actually went to design school and when I got out of school, I went on 70 job interviews and got zero offers. So I started a fake agency in the closet of my apartment. <laughs> and Excellent. Yeah. Yada, 30 years later, here we are. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be in the room when it happened on many, many brands with many like whip, smart, brilliant, fearless leaders who taught me how to do that. And when brands started to become a thing, I went back to school at University of Washington and studied leadership and management and took some of the maps that we'd used with some of these brands and built a brand strategy process Right. That so that is how I became a brand person and been using this map and applying new data and new technology and basically using a biohacker mentality of hacking the system all the time to make it faster and get deeper insights. And that is really the model that my organization runs on. 
And I, I love the name retail voodoo because, of course, it, it is magic. So it's <laughs> that does this. Um, yeah. It's David. So let me touch real quick on because I, I, I really want to talk about this a little bit. And that is um, the folks at Kind. Um, and I know we haven't talked about this previously, but um, the folks at Cliff Bar were my clients for, I think, about seven years or so. Um Kind was just started when we when we were not working with them anymore. But we went through a lot of things during that period of time, including the introduction of Mojo, which was the the first savory kind of energy bar, Luna, which was the first bar marketed to women, and then you know basically doing a lot of cross channel stuff and getting inconvenience in places where people didn't find energy bars. Can you give me a little bit of background on what you did with Kind, and you know obviously a great job. Um, and, you know, tell us a little bit about how that, how that worked. Sure. I'll do my best. So I, I would begin by saying that the people at kind are brilliant and, and compassionate and Daniel Lebetsky in particular is a visionary and a wild man and unafraid of anything on the planet and wants to do what's best for humans and be bold at the same time. So they were well down the path when we engaged they came to us and said hey we have some data that shows that um dudes men young men are not uh they're having flavor fatigue around what's going on in the category can you help us develop a category and so that's what we did with them and um that became as you mentioned mojo and savory so we we helped develop a savory line and it was called kind and strong and involved kevin durant and this whole notion of yes incrementally better thinking if if um dude master 3000 or Bubba, people who are going to 7-Eleven to get lunch, which is typically Ho-Ho's and a Coca-Cola. Yep. If you can get them to have a Kind bar and a bottle of water, that is incrementally better. And so that's what we were trying to do is position that that particular sub-brand or that, that point off of their, their North Star to attract that audience. And it was fascinating. I always appreciated Daniel and the fact that he took, again, as you mentioned, a bold, very bold step of using black on a food product which up to that period of time was pretty much a no-no you didn't you didn't go there um you know and and yet they were able to use it very uh you know very inventively and i think it was a great great step forward yeah Yeah. really smart people really you know some of the people that uh that i still admire and i'm watching them kind of kick butt and run different marketing teams around the, the food and beverage world now we're all there at that time. So, um, you know who you are. Woohoo. Love you. Uh, <laughs> um, so so let, let, let's go to the opposite side a little bit. And, and if I pronounce it incorrectly, apologies in advance. Is it Sahel Snacks? Oh, see, this is a, this is going to be such a good story. No, it's Sahali Snacks. Sahali, of course. Yes. And so here's the thing um, about Sahali Snacks. I'm, actually, if you have a question, I want you to ask the question first. Um, no, no, actually, uh, I, I don't have a specific question about it. Um, but the general story about it would be great because again, it's a, it's a brand that has, to me has come from nowhere to all of a sudden, wow, I see it. I recognize it. Yes. So Sahali snacks is named after a peak 
that only mountain climbers in the Pacific Northwest or extreme mountain climbers from other areas know is the practice hike you take if you're going to do Summit Mount Rainier. Mm. So, uh, again, you you illustrated perfectly the challenge with that brand, which is um, when a name has uh, pronunciation difficulty, the, my classic case study of that is Teva or Teva, the, the sandal. Yes. Nobody can. It's all good. You, you still know what the brand stands for. The challenge in the case of Sahali is they had two specific audiences and two specific sets of goals that were not translating. And so we helped that we, we helped them become a 10-year overnight success. Yeah. In other words, you know, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And then we worked on it. And in one year's time, we helped them go from not being able to get the velocity they needed to stay on the shelf despite having incredibly charismatic salespeople and charismatic founders. Um, they could, in other words, they could sell anything to anybody and get on any shelf, but they weren't getting the turns. So every time they would either get moved, which meant they had to go resell it to a buyer or oh, they right. wouldn't meet their velocity hurdle and they would get discoed. And um, that left them with um, the loving yet evil mistress of Costco basically being the reason they were in business. And uh, so we had to, as far as thinking about how to grow it and how to how to keep that business healthy and strong and that relationship strong, and then how to get it so that people out in the channel would understand who they were, and that all of these retailers who might not get called upon by the founders would be interested in the story so that they would give it another shot. So we helped to decide where it would live on shelf in certain retailers, so, for example, try it in produce in Safeway and try it over here in this aisle in Whole Foods and try it over in this aisle in um, New Seasons and that sort of thing. And so we had all of that as well as a design system and a vocabulary system that cleaned it up so that it, you didn't need to know how to pronounce Sahali. <laughs> and you could just enjoy the, the, the snack promise they were making and feel like you were doing something um, delicious and and better for you and that it was shareable exactly yeah and it's it, in great great looking and great tasting stuff so i mean it delivers delivers on the promise as as well um so uh, without getting into anything that would be proprietary of course how did you guys attack that or how did you know if you want to how did the relationship start what did you look at was it all data did you do focus groups what what's the process that got us to you know, sort of rebirth that brand, as it were. Yeah. So the the people that were in the organization that brought us in was um, a board member turned CEO and a super smart, amazing uh, VP of marketing who had who since went on to run Sahali for Smuckers after it was acquired. Uh -huh. um, she, she's my superhero in this story because she she blocked and tackled and, and made things happen and basically what we did is we used data to change the minds of people who had formed opinions got in a room and had a collective cognitive bias that made them think that the data was something else and so we went and got uh, UNA study done and worked on audience segmentation and we talked to the retailers we talked to humans, meaning consumers, we talked to the retailers, and we brought all that back and said, oh, when you say, when you say this inside of Sahali, it means this. And when you have this happen out in, the, in reality, people don't know when to actually 
engage with your product. And ah. so mm-hmm. I had um, I had been a super fan of Sahali because my entrance in and I, I'm I'm kind of an outdoorsy guy, much more so then when that project was going on than I am in this current iteration. Um, I still get outside. I'm just not avidly hiking every weekend and that sort of stuff. But right. so. Trail mix, you know, if you're an outdoorsy person, you kind of know what's what. You have a set of brands in your consideration set. And this one wasn't even on mine. I first ran into it at a very fancy Christmas party where it was in a crystal, lead crystal dish with the packets behind it so people would know what it was. And of course, snorfed the whole bowl down, took an iPhone shot and said, I'm going to call these guys because I've never heard of this. And that's how we connected. Um, but I, but what was very interesting is when we went into the UNA study, we actually found out that there were two distinct users who didn't hang out. And I happened to possess both of them, which was people who go to Fancy Pants cocktail parties where it's in a lead crystal dish with the package behind it. And then people who buy it at Costco who throw it in their cupboard and want to go eat it on the trail. But the bag's too big and they never finish the bag because they don't know what to do with it after the hike. And so we were able to take the data and distill it down to the kind of nuggets I'm sharing with you right now and redirect the ship. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, very, very important in the fact that, you know, particularly usage, I think a a lot of people that I work with are obviously have a concept about them. Sometimes they're, they're founders, so they have a, you know, a concept set basically in stone and then you do the research and you find out that in fact people are not using your product like you thought they were using it at all <laughs> and uh that can represent an opportunity or it can represent a a real challenge going forward but yeah that's that's great stuff and um and, and of course eventually they sold to smuckers so now they're in the in the big in the big leagues now so that's a, a different different story but still good looking and still good tasting stuff yeah it's amazing and it is everywhere um, so one of the things that, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about too was, um, beyond, beyond data, I mean, um, there's a lot of sub- subjectivity when it comes to looking at brands. And when we talk about, you know, the, the dominant brands, we talk about, um, you know, how some of those have evolved and stand over time. Um, you've just written a book obviously about how to, how to become, you know, a, a dominant, but also beloved brand. What's the trick between being loved and dominant and being like, you know, not, not ranking real well on the likability scale and yet still being a dominant player in a category. And, and right offhand, I think of like United airlines, you know, it's not loved much at all, particularly by its best customers, but, you know, versus somebody like, and I don't know, an Amazon or whatever, who has a really a legion of people who just absolutely love, the brand and what it does. Yeah, those are very interesting choices. <clears throat> and it kind of takes the, the premise of the book and it, and it flips it backwards, which is great. Let's do that. So thinking of like United Airlines, they don't have to try because they already have a census of users that and, and um, a model where if you're a frequent flyer or you're getting your mileage through that, it's a pain in the butt to switch and you don't want to lose that. So it's always kind of the lesser of um, pain points to just continue forward, you, yes. but you might complain. Yep. And Amazon, whom we love uh, and write and talk about all the time, is kind of the uh, 
the poster child for convenience and next generation and also sort of, you know, the new killer app that takes out, it, it simultaneously takes out businesses and makes room for new businesses to grow. So it really represents the modern life convenience and the future. So I think that's why people love it because it's so easy and it's, um, there's more good than harm. Right. Um, I put air quotes around that. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I do. I, I, you know, I work with some better for you folks, um, in product space who, um, one will not work with Amazon. Um, and the other said, you know, I, I know that it's probably really wasteful for, the truck to drive up and deliver, you know, a package to somebody's house. She goes, but I, I don't, I don't have a choice. She goes that I, I need to solve that in a different way. Um, so it's, it does. Yeah. You have to put quotes around it a, a little bit, but if, if, and, and again, in, in, in terms of the, the book, David is really aimed at growing brand founders and stuff who maybe are able to make that choice at this point, or at least line up the, uh, you know, line up everything to try to become both beloved and dominant? Well, kind of. So I, I wrote the book specifically because I wanted to create something that was simple enough for everybody to understand whether your MBA was in finance or marketing or what have you, or if you are somebody who came to your idea in the kitchen and you don't have that background. So it's intended to be a common language playbook for investors, founders, marketers, whether you come from grassroots or big CPG and you're now in the better for you space, it's a different world. And the book is intended to say, if you do all of these things, you can move from the herd of also rands and stand out. And the premise of the book is really that anybody in this space of better for you starts out with a new idea and they become beloved by default. They become the one and only because they're the first. They're the pioneer and they are super cool to everybody and they get so much traction. And then because they get some traction, and that could be uh, regional, it could be global traction, what happens is they're going to be knocked off. That, you know, like if you, for example, go back to kind savory protein bars in mojo bars by cliff and you took the wrappers off and you laid them next to each other there are negligible differences right yeah so you could get into ingredient profile you could go well this one tastes more like cool ranch doritos and this one tastes more like um you know nacho cheese doritos yeah. but <clears throat> you get my point so it's it's a world of hyper choice and because he who owns the factory no longer wins it's she who has the idea that can become a brand wins. And most people who are inventing something in the natural is better for you space get branding and think it means a really cool logo and a really cool pack. It's not the holistic story. And so they end up going out, becoming beloved by default. And when they get copied or knocked off by better funded, more sophisticated competitors and or the retailers whom help them succeed in the first place, they are in a in a struggling space. And so they're spending more on marketing and getting less traction than they were before and having to compete on features and benefits where that didn't matter before because their features and benefits were their brand. And so it's, that's the premise of why, why write the book to help these um, better for you brands 
have a game plan to get everybody literally on the same page in their organization, in their investor pool, and in their retailer world so that they can march forward and reclaim the top spot in that, that category. Is is there, David, a, a point where, I guess, you know, origins of brands, obviously from everything from founders' names to descriptions of what the product does, um, but where in the march from, you know, selling at a farmer's market to, you know, selling in Wegmans and, and nationally at Albertsons and Kroger or whatever, where does that definition of the brand really have to come together? Where, you know, I mean, where where it's going to be really a difference between creating something that sticks in people's minds and something that just, you know, may may sell a few thousand units or whatever, but it's not going to go much farther. Is there is there a point that you can look at? Yeah, I think it's it's early. So my my first response to that is if you're selling stuff at a farmer's market, um, you have a hobby, not a brand. Um, right. Yeah. If you get to scale, if you want to scale and you want to have a big impact on a major like a community impact, or you want to change the way people eat or think, or impact their diets, or change the curve of their their lifespan, which is what most natural products are trying to do on some level. Then you have to have a why that connects your origin story, your reason you exist beyond making a profit, and a reason you exist beyond your product line, and tie all of that together into a brand, which in my opinion, again, is not your package and your logo and your advertising and all of that. It's the promises you're going to make and the way in which you're going to keep them. That is the, the premise of brand, in my my opinion. We talk also, David, about mission. Now there are mission-based brands, and I, I I I do some some work you know some workshop work with people who are in that space. Difference between mission and brand, um, you know I I'm not sure. Sometimes, you know, uh, let, let's take the thing of, of the founder has a medical problem. She devises a recipe that she can eat, that her family can eat, whatever, and realizes that oh my goodness, there's other people who want this. All of a sudden, boom. It's, it's a brand, it's a product, it's a growing business. Um, but there's still this mission of trying to deliver something to other people who have similar symptoms to herself, right? It, it becomes larger, but yet there's still this sort of mission-driven. Or it's the mission-driven, meaning we're giving, you know, we're giving 5% of profits or whatever to, you know, one world or whatever it is, is... is do you draw lines between mission and brand? Absolutely, we do. And that's a really great uh, uncollapsing of two murky, potentially murky ideas. If brand is the promise you make in the way in which you keep it, that can be, we're going to make the cleanest, best thing and get it available so that people who have this particular health condition can do X, Y, Z. That is, that is a promise, but the promise would also go, it needs to taste good, it needs to be affordable in their life, it needs to be accessible, all of that. So those are promises you're making, and you could you could even have, and we're going to give back so that there are pandas in the future, as an example. Yep. Uh, that That is all great, and those are all promises the brand makes, and then it's about the way in which they, you keep those promises, and then how I feel as an individual consumer user, how that shows up in my heart, mind, and soul, that is your brand. Right. You know? Yep. Jeff Bezos gets gets credit for saying a brand is what they say about you when you're not in the room. That is a really great summation of how we see it as well. 
Yes. But yeah. Mission's different. So mission is in in my mind is different. It's way more tactical and potentially way more inspirational. Mission is first off, it needs to be a goal that's an action. So you have to be really crystal clear on what that is. Right. And it needs to be something you can measure because what gets measured matters and improves. And it needs to be written inspirationally and simply enough so that everyone in your organization, whether they are cleaning the floors or the server or working in the factory or part of your OEM strategy, whatever it is, they know what their job is and how to do their job to deliver against the mission. And, you know, there's the classic story of Walter Cronkite and JFK and being on the CBS Evening News when NASA was going to um, shoot a rocket into space. Yeah. And do you know this story? No. Okay. So um, it's a fun story. So Walter Cronkite is going to interview JFK on the Evening News at NASA headquarters. And on camera, they're walking around and there's a gentleman behind the president who is sweeping and mopping like a maniac. And the president was so distracted during this airing that he went and asked, young man, what are you doing? And the janitor looked the president right in the eye and said, well, sir, I'm helping put a man on the moon. <laughs> and that yeah. is the power of a killer mission statement. Yes. Yeah. That, that shows that there can be, you know, yeah, the good things. And it's a different, it's a different outlook. And I think in, in if you can, if you can somehow muster amongst all the, you know, employees, your team, suppliers, or whatever, that kind of, you know, mission, um, and you know, and and I'm helping and I'm doing something different. I think that really is uh, that becomes that becomes magic in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that um, I think was just probably a couple of weeks ago. But we had a uh, um, we had a show uh, in Boise at the Capitol where the Buy Idaho you know Commerce Department um, does some stuff with local brands, and I'm walking around talking to some people. I have a couple of clients exhibiting there. We're doing all this stuff, and I see this table, and I see these people with Bigelow tea tea bags, and I walked over. How are you guys doing today? Whatever, and I didn't know at the time but i asked him i said so where's bigelow tea around here they said well there's a plant in east boise and we supply and they're going through the whole thing we supply all the tea for bigelow you know west of denver and i'm like wow that's really amazing and they took part of their day came out set up a booth and had people try bigelow tea and i went well that's got to be a pretty good you know a pretty good culture in that building to to do that because uh you know i i certainly didn't know about it i know about it now but it's like you know same thing it's like they're participating and so proud of the fact that yes we supply you know we supply the tea so when you drink it that's that's where it's that's where it's coming from which that was pretty pretty amazing that is amazing and that is a great demonstration of how important it is for these bigger brands that are often perceived as um, conglomerates and inhuman, it's a chance, you're, that's a great demonstration of them taking their humanity back out to the street so that people can see them as people. You know, one of the things I noticed you use in the retail retail voodoo uh, in, in your information stuff that's sent out is um, the phrase brand ecosystem. Can you enlighten us a little bit of just what that means? 
Sure. So a brand ecosystem, again, if, if your brand is a, a set of promises you're going to make and the way in which you're deciding to keep them, that should permeate all of the core aspects of marketing. And if you, you think about it, uh, in the modern world, it starts with social. But in our world, it starts with customer education as a foundation for everything that you're going to do. And that our, our ecosystem it, for a brand, we include customer education, PR, advertising. But again, that is such a nebulous term these days. But, um, we could talk about that for a whole episode probably. Yes. yes. Uh, the next would be in-store, which also includes your online um, e-commerce platform. So that whole aspect. And then the next would be your your digital properties. So if your, your website and your shopping channels, and then when you have those relationships with consumers, what is what does direct look like in the 21st century? And then lastly, social. And we kind of draw it out as a pyramid in order to help people see it that way and our level of emphasis. So if you have a broad customer education foundation, it will hold a wackadoodle social strategy in place right. much better than a wackadoodle social strategy with no customer education in place, which is what most brands default to because it's cool and clever and looks good. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so um, I, I should um, just uh, for our listeners edification. Um, so David and I are actually recording this in um, the second week of COVID-19 coronavirus uh, craziness. And uh, not the March Madness we were looking for, right, David? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Um, but um, the impact across, and we were talking before the show, across different types of food food firms and, 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 and direct versus stores and, and all of these things, we were kind of matching up what was going on in Seattle versus Boise and, and some of my friends in, in California. Uh, the impact is, given that there's been a huge surge in direct to consumer and e-commerce um at, at this point some some record breaking stuff for people that I work with um is this an inflection point for e-commerce food and beverage you think or is this going to snap back after it's I all I think over? it's a huge inflection point I think that there are people who have been slow to get on the bus of having some of your food delivered through e-commerce. Um, I think that is changing. Uh, here's my social proof for this theory. I was doing virtual happy hour with some of my buddies last night uh, because some of them have been shut in for two weeks and some of them are in the industry and others are not. And there were the people who were not in the industry who are, were staunch, go to the farmer's market, staunch, go pick my stuff out. We're trying, um, they were buying food through e-commerce and through Instacart and that sort of thing for the first time and saying, what was I afraid of? <clears throat> and so <laughs> I think there are many people who are in Gen X and older who have been maybe slow to get in that boat who are now saying, hey, that's easy. It's painless. It's um, sufficient quality. And there's limited risk that I think the, uh, will change everything forever. Yeah, I, it's it's amazing. I know when when Walmart rolled out its um, you know click and collect right drive up and whatever, they were totally shocked with the reaction that they got in terms of the number of people participating, and then also that a whole kind of new clientele who like wouldn't go into a Walmart um, yeah. before were willing to drive up and 
you know, collect the groceries and get them put in the car because of the convenience. Just, oh, you know, because unlike you and I, who could spend hours in a grocery store just having tons of fun, um, a, lo- a lot of people do not find that to be a very, you know, a good way to spend valuable time. And so I think that was that was already rolling. And then um, some things that you use on a regular basis, you know, again, people were doing subscriptions, you know, it took a little while to warm to that. But I agree with you. I, I think this, you know, yes, you know, we're not going to have the same sales of, you know, non-perishable goods that we're having during the crisis. But a lot of those people who may be using that e-commerce platform or whatever for the first time, or maybe using it for things they never thought of, um, I think a lot of that's going to continue and it's going to be very interesting to see to see what happens. Um, how about delivery services, David? You think that's that's also, I mean, you mentioned Instacart and um, I know they're just overwhelmed at this point, but how does that, how does that play out? Does that just become bigger part of the landscape? I, th- I think it becomes bigger. I think it's very interesting time because right now restaurants and gathering places are shut down, but the, the kitchens are ablaze with activity. And I think of, you know, brands like DoorDash, for example, mm-hmm. they can't hire people fast enough to deliver food. And prior to this COVID-19 scenario we're in, I know people in that organization and they were helping restaurants make delivery kitchens separate from their core dining establishments because it was already gaining that much traction. Wow, I think okay. that off, off the cliff, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think it will help the prepared food people, the blue apron, you know, freshly all that, or is that still in limbo? Well, I think here, so that's a, that's a great question. Cause you know, I, I did that for a while. I had the meal kits delivered to the house and, and I think that there is, um, I think there's a certain audience certain kind of consumer, certain mind space around um, participation that those those brands, those delivery services or meal kits really need to tap into. And I think that, frankly, there are too many of them to, to have, have any one of them really stand out meaningfully over a long period of time. Right. Yeah. I think it was interesting, of course, when there was a, a little bit of a blip when Several of them were acquired, and and Albertsons, um, which is headquartered here in Boise, um, you know, did did a purchase, and they immediately started putting the kits in the stores. And one of the things that that I was looking at was, well, this is really great, except for the fact that uh, unless, I mean, even though there were good margins on them, I mean, they were fairly expensive. Um, was that you know, if I was the grocer, I'd really rather have the people go in the store and buy all the elements to make this. Because it would be a lot more margin for me, and uh, and give a variation, and so now they've evolved it to basically be kind of prepared sides, and you buy the protein, and so yeah. and and that may be only in the stores locally here because they're experimenting with it, but it's the thing of like yeah, this, so this goes with chicken, this is the stuff that goes with chicken, but it doesn't have the chicken in it. We want you to go over and buy the chicken here, and so it's kind of like an, an evolution evolution if you will of that yeah well that's that's really cool to hear about because i think that's where it is going i do think big organizations grocers like albertson's are going to 
take control of that model, uh, operationalize it so that it's um, meaningful to their consumers and it helps them get um, more touch points within their store or if it's their app or whatever it is. I, I think that branded versions of those will be um, less and less. Right, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that's that's kind of going to be a, an evolution there as it will. Um, Dave, can we talk real quick about um, Essentia? So, sure. Um, how Essentia Water? A lot of people know it, but but if you don't, um, it's a it's a great uh, great brand. Um, how did you work with them, and what was the what was the outcome on that? Essentia are again wicked smart, brave people. Uh, met the founder and the CMO when they were doing really well at Whole Foods, but wanted to grow. And we worked with them to define a a new market, uh, define new audiences, define uh, a reason to be beyond the product offering. And we put all of that together, helped them decide on who their audience to be in the future was gonna be, and really pushed them to make a bunch of very small moves and those small moves ended up creating revolutionary change and growth. And when they were in Whole Foods, what was their what, what, what was their positioning? How were they different from other waters? Yeah, well, I think it was kind of kind of not crystal clear. They were there, and they were doing what I kind of uh, joke with my team about all the time is they were there and they had a certain look and they were just hoping that you would mind reader into it what the brand was about and if you hadn't been referred you didn't know so okay. the two two core audiences at whole foods were people who had been sent there by a doctor um the water is actually particularly good for people recovering from illness and even recovering from disease or post chemotherapy so again hospital side the other thing it does that nobody knows unless your coach told you is performance athletes can get a whole lot out of it for recovery after workouts or for energy, sustained energy during um, prolonged periods of activity. Right. So those are two audiences that don't hang out together. So there was no cross-pollination, <laughs> no growth, no nothing. So we helped uh, helped bridge the gap and help people who are not extreme performance athletes or recovering from a very serious illness um, understand the benefits. And we, we broke it down so it was not rocket science and not scary and not overpromising and turned it into really the, you know, the, the cliche is we helped make it a lifestyle. And it's a massive zag against the entire water category. And that combined with avoiding um, the kind of the cliches that go with marketing water of bubbly blue and Jennifer Aniston and that sort of stuff and um, Caucasian women in Lycra, you know, all of those things that are part of the cliche of marketing water. We just didn't do any of that and um, invited them to join a tribe we called the Ascension Nation, which was all about overachieving H2O and uh, calling over the overachiever and you out to participate in this nation and that seemed to be the thing and that, that's that's great and that, and that way you were able to actually talk to the two diverse groups as well i mean it was it was fine that resonates yeah where whether you are going to recover and be the strongest recoverer ever or the best 
um, volleyball player or the best record collector or mathematician, this will help you. And, um, and it'll help you um, think better and be happier and be recover from whatever you're doing quicker. And that, that resonated with people. Absolutely. So if, if anyone, by the way, out there in the audience would like some more information about uh, David David's group, Retail Voodoo, and what they do, you can visit, they have a website, www.retail-voodoo.com. And what about the book, David? Is it is it actually available at this point? And is it on Amazon and all those good things? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, you can check out a link. You can actually download the first chapter for free from our website if you're interested. So Great. check it out there. Look on Amazon. Love feedback on it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 actually looking looking forward to it. Um, so as as you know, Dave, we we always try to put our guests on the spot. That's very important. Um, and and one of the things that we do is we sort of ask uh, if they can encapsulate advice they would give to fellow entrepreneurs, um, and particularly since most of our folks are in the uh, food and beverage space. Um, do you have like one word or one topic, one phrase, David, that you think people need to remember as they go forward building their businesses? Yeah, I think this is a, a timeless thing, but also in light of where we are in society with this COVID-19 thing and the restructuring and the rejiggering and people's concern, I think that what I would say is many uh, the business owners that we are talking to on a regular basis are asking, are we going to be okay? And my answer is no, you're not going to be okay. You're going to be freaking amazing because <laughs> you use this time to be bold and clear and make your vision be the center of your brand. That's great. Yeah. And, and this is the time to do it for sure. Because, uh, you know, if, if there's just a little bit of, you know, a little bit of pause or spend some time in reflection um, that maybe otherwise you'd be fighting other fires, um, this is an awesome time to actually get your, get your stuff together and, and get back on the, get back on the mission. Absolutely. Well, David, I really hate, appreciate you so much spending the time with us today. And uh, we're going to have to probably have another talk after this is all over. And, uh, and because there's so many brand stories, I'd like to, to, you know, get you to, you know, spill the beans on it would be, it would be great. <laughs> so, but thanks for taking the time. Thanks for, in fact, coming into the office today, because that's Im important too. Uh, it, it's kind of a, a ghost town, right? Where, where we are. So, yeah. um, at any rate, great. So thanks so much. And by the way, thanks to all the rest of you in the audience for joining us here on the Next Level Brands podcast today. We are brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses, workshops, and webinars for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you'd like to know more about selling at retail, e-commerce, distributors, or how, how to price your product, check out the free webinar archive at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.